This movie is the definition of propaganda and subversion designed to terrify people of any age into accepting Christ. The psychological warfare that this movie engages in is disgusting, as is the constant paranoia that some of the characters perpetuate. They don't seem remotely phased about demonstrating what this messaging does to children, and while it isn't a kid's movie, they pulled it out on me multiple times beginning at age 13, and some churches play this card even earlier. Deep down, they know they can't get past people's senses of logic with the ridiculousness of the gospel message, so they resort to fear. Their persuasive messaging is so thin, they can't approach it from the perspective of love. It's not God loves you so accept his gift so you can have an abundant life. It's God expects you to follow him and if you choose not to, he will punish you forever and ever and ever. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers and free thinkers. There is life after faith and life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. Scaring people to God. What an effective way of spreading the gospel of love, hope, and peace. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we are taking apart the Mark IV classic that even some Christians find too extreme in its messaging to endorse or stand behind. The original and still the most notorious Christian horror flick that's even more offensive than Silent Scream, A Thief in the Night. This movie is so sick, so twisted, and so rife with end times propaganda, it's hard to take it seriously. But here's the problem. A lot of people, a lot of kids did back in the day, and some still wear the scars. We'll get into that more in just a bit, but... First, locking the vote, another exorcism turned murder, and more of that lovely evangelical hate for anyone who isn't cishat and proud of it. It's Christians behaving badly, maddening melee edition. Oh, gosh. What have you got for us this week? Well, first up is our favorite tent preacher, Pastor Greg Locke. He's been reported to the IRS for Johnson Amendment violations. The Johnson Amendment is the law that says that churches and nonprofits can't tell people who to vote for. Of course, every church kind of goes against that law, um, at least the evangelical ones do. But no one can tell Greg Locke what to do. And so he gave a sermon at his church that the only people that real Christians can vote for are, wait for it, Republicans. Shocking. So shocking. Here's a sample of said sermon. I'm to the place right now, if you vote Democrat, I don't even want you around this church. You can get out. You can get out, you demon. You can get out, you baby-butchering election thief. You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. I don't care how mad that makes you. You can get as pissed off as you want to. You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. They hate this nation. You cannot be a Democrat and a Christian. You cannot. Somebody say amen. The rest of you, get out. Get out in the name of Jesus. You know, here's what I don't get. How does this guy still have a church? I don't know. He's got everyone in his church 
in his crosshairs, like constantly yep. accusing them of all kinds of shit. Why do people keep coming back? I, this makes absolutely no sense. He doesn't have half the charm or charisma of your average um, Kenneth Copeland type. Ugh. He He's batshit insane. Mm. He has anger management issues up the yin-yang. Yeah. And you want to talk about paranoia. This guy is paranoia incarnate. And it absolutely boggles my mind how he still has enough followers to keep spewing this rhetoric week after week after week. He hates the same people that they hate. But he goes on. Everyone want to talk about that insurrection? Hmm, let me tell you something. You ain't even seen insurrection yet. You keep pushing our buttons, you low-down, sorry, compromisers, you God-hating communists. Maybe you'll find out what an insurrection is. He's just a delight. I know. And again, he's so fucking paranoid. Yeah. When he starts going off on these tangents, he stops making sense really, really quick. Oh, yeah. Like, almost instantly. Yep. And this isn't a new opinion about, like, Christians not voting for Democrats. I was told this in high school by a man in the church that I respected. It was dismaying. I didn't want to condemn people who are gay or who had abortions, but I was young and I had little confidence and absolutely no self-esteem, so I took his word for it. As we all did. Of course. We all wanted to do what our elders were telling us. Yeah, because they were the ones that had experience. Yeah. They understood these things way better than we did. So, of course, we lent deference to what our youth pastor or even just other adults in our church would say. I mean, there were some adults in my church that I knew were just completely batshit. Yeah. But for the most part, if you were old enough to be one of my friend's parents, I would trust what you had to say unless I was given reason not to. So, no, that doesn't surprise me in the least. I think that we all went through that. I think that that yeah. was just a thing that we were conditioned for. Yeah. And we and we listened to anyone who we believed to be an authority on anything spiritual. That landed me in Bible college. I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> yeah. Of course there are Christians who vote Democrat. Even 15% of evangelical Christians voted for Biden this past election. But Locke doesn't want to hear that. He wants to command an army of Republican soldiers. And that last thing he said about the insurrection, I pay attention to that. Yeah, he says a lot of things that you kind of want to bookmark and pay attention to because he's going crazy like cult leaders are crazy. Yeah. And there are so many things that he says that, you know, not, not just people who listen to atheist podcasts. The government should be watching what he's saying and doing. There are many, many entities out there that should be watching what he's saying and doing because none of it is good for society. No. And all of it can do damage. This persona of his that he projects is definitely crazy, Mm. but so was the persona of Jim Jones. So was the persona of David Koresh. So does everyone who is like this guy, anybody Anybody has the capability of convincing enough people to think the way that they do. And this guy is particularly dangerous. Oh, yeah. He's he's batshit insane. And no one with a modicum of intelligence takes him seriously. But he's still dangerous. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, look at 45. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, what sane person looks at this guy and thinks that he's a good role model, teacher, example of anything? Yeah. Well, the answer is a lot of people. Unfortunately. And, and someone like Greg Locke is every bit as capable of amassing enough of a following to do damage. So, yeah, keep your eye on him. We've said it before. Keep your eye on him. Yeah. So what's on deck? Well, a deadly exorcism in California has taken the life of a three-year-old girl. It happened because the child's mother and the mother's father, who pastors the church that they both attend, had a shared delusion. Here's the story. On September 24th, 2021, the mother called the San Jose Police Department and said that her daughter died. Police found the girl, Areli Naomi Proctor, on the floor of Iglesia Evangelica Apostoles y Profetas Church, and she was later declared deceased at a hospital. The cause was officially homicide with the cause of death of asphyxia due to suffocation due to mechanical asphyxia and smothering. The mother, Claudia Hernandez, said that they were at the church run by her father because they believed the girl was possessed by a demon. So many of these stories are so fucking similar. I know, it's it's sad. I mean, I feel like we've told this story before. Some of the details are so similar yeah. Oh yeah. that it feels like we've told this story before, but no, this is new. This is reasonably new. Yeah. Why did they think that she was possessed? Because sometimes the little girl would wake up and scream or cry. Oh, you got to be kidding. She's three. Yeah, yeah. That kind of happens. It does. Hernandez, her brother, Rene Hernandez Santos, and her father, Rene Treguros Hernandez, apparently held the girl down and took turns trying to get her to vomit up the demon they believed was inside her. Here's a quote from the article I got this from. Hernandez stated she attempted to stick her finger down the victim's throat and squeezed the victim's neck to induce vomiting. The victim fell asleep several times while Hernandez pushed down on the victim's throat with her hand. Hernandez described the victim sustaining bruising around her eyes, throat and neck and chest. Two hours after the child stopped moving, they finally called 911. And that's another running trend with these things. Oh, yeah. They'll sit on this for hours and sometimes days before they'll call for help. Yeah. They yeah. don't want to go to jail. But, I mean, they're going to anyway. Yeah. They're, they're, just, they're just prolonging the inevitable. Right. Because, you know, no one is going to buy the whole demon possession thing. No. And even if they did, that's still not justifiable cause for doing something like this to a child. No. So there's no way they're not going to go to jail. No. So why wait two hours? I know. Days later, Claudia Hernandez set up a GoFundMe to pay for little Arelli's funeral. And in January, she put up a video with pictures of her daughter. She never disclosed how the little girl died. She only said, it is what it is. So she died of it is what it is. Yeah. Okay. She, her brother and father were arrested days after that. They now face up to 25 years in prison. And here's hoping that they get the max. I seriously hope so. This last one, we're just going to give a quick trigger warning for uh, transphobia and trans discrimination here. I read through this before we sat down. Absolutely rage-inducing. And uh, just proof positive that uh, we, we've got a long way to go as a society. Oh, definitely. When Jamie Lynn Diavola ran for the Colorado Springs School Board... Her website said, 
One of my top priorities would be to make sure children are assigned to different bathrooms based on their biological sex, a direct attack on trans kids. She also condemned comprehensive sex education, the LGBTQ agenda, Black Lives Matter, and social justice. Just a total moral monster on every level. Oh, yeah. Just oozing with that love of Jesus. Mm. A caring student wrote a very heartfelt letter to her when she started on the school board, urging her to reconsider her positions on a number of things, for instance, sex education. She says in her letter, some students do not receive this information at home and need to learn it at school so they can stay safe and healthy. I know this is a lot, Mrs. Devola, but please at least consider the things I have said. The mental health of the district students is potentially on the line. Mrs. Devola could just have sent a form letter back and ignored it, but she didn't. Instead, she wrote a condescending, proselytizing letter. And here's part of her letter. When someone fully understands who they are in Christ, then they will know they are valued and will be able to overcome depression and thoughts of suicide. They will know that there are only two genders and that there is absolute truth that comes from the word of God. Oh, fuck you. We are not free to do whatever we feel like. We must uphold the values and truth of the Bible. I pray that God would reveal himself to you so that you too can experience the love of the Father. At the next school board meeting, the student's mother, Lacey Carroll, stood up to speak for her daughter. And this is part of her speech. You have communicated that students should not be subjected to opinions that contradict their family's values. But which parents? I'm certainly not included in that. A board member's email to my child referenced in the letter you received from the Freedom From Religion Foundation made it quite clear that this only applies to parents who already think like she does. My family values science and mental health care, diversity and inclusion. She trampled on these values when she communicated with my child and promoted something entirely different. You seem to think that your values are the only ones that can exist and that anything else is the absence of values. I want to be clear that I am very intentionally teaching my kids to celebrate diversity and to make others feel safe. Those are our family values. According to you, I should have the right to do that without a school official going behind my back to undermine me. So help me understand. Do all parents have rights or just the ones you agree with? What is the real purpose of this discussion? I want you to really ask yourselves that, because I think that if it were truly about parental rights, you would have more to say in defense of mine. Thank you. Oh, yeah, you know what? That's a marvelous mic drop moment there. I know. I have nothing to add. I have nothing to add to that. She did a stellar job yeah. of presenting her position, and I could just see this bitch sitting there squirming in her seat as she was talking, too. Yeah. Um, the full speech is pretty impressive. Is there a link to it? In the show notes. Okay, cool. Great speech, right? But, of course, one of Mrs. Devola's fellow conservative Christians on the board, Mrs. Liu, had to get in one last dig after the other school board members had responded to other public comments. And she says, And Mrs. Carroll, your child contacted Mrs. Jamie Lynn. Stop accusing her of pushing her agenda on your child. Your child contacted her. Please stop accusing her publicly of a misdoing. 
So the child urged a school board member to be a decent human being. The school board member responded by basically telling that child that she's too stupid to understand mental illness and gender identity and needed more Jesus in her life. And then her buddy decided to blame the child as well. This is what happens when you vote in stupid-ass conservatives with a huge agenda and blinders on. You get this sort of crap. You know the solution. Vote. Yep. You're going to be hearing that word a lot on this show. And let's just be clear about this one thing. There is no election that does not matter, okay? Not at national level, not at state level, not at local level. If your town is voting in a dog catcher this year, go to the polls and vote for the Democratic dog catcher. I'm, I'm not even kidding. No. We need to position the pieces on this chessboard very, very, very carefully and very meticulously. And we need complete support. We need anyone who cares about the future of this country to get to the polls and vote this year. And we're not going to shut up about it. We're going to be as in your face about it as we have to be to make sure that that everyone who's listening to us understands just how imperative this is. Because it is just that imperative because of shit like this. Because of people out there like this who are getting their way and having their say more and more and more and more every day. If you're tired of it, go to the polls and shut them the fuck up. Yeah. And again, on that happy note, coming out of this wonderful discussion about the love of Jesus that just emanates from these people. We just want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. Any monetary donation that you can make is going to be greatly appreciated and put to good use. And if you flat out don't have the money to spare, that's fine. We completely understand that. And there are plenty of other things that you can do. Support us with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, everything that helps podcasts grow. And first and foremost, talk about us. Tell people about this show. And I'm going to give another call to action about this toward the end of the episode, especially with this particular episode, because this movie's done some damage. (laughs) And I think that it's important that we address the damage that it's done and let people know that things that they experienced when they were kids, especially things that are tied to this movie, don't have to control them emotionally or mentally anymore. Because there's still plenty of people out there who were literally scarred for life seeing this movie. So anything that you can do to help us out, whether it's financially or in the other ways that we mention every single week, just let people know that we're out there. And we thank you in advance for just considering supporting us financially because we definitely need that kind of support too. But as I've said many times before, I'm far more concerned with people hearing this message and getting their lives back. And you can be integral in that part of the equation by simply telling people about us and letting them know that we're out here and giving them the opportunity to get from the messaging what you're getting from it every single week. Next week, we're going to be taking the week off. I'm going to be mired down in road test mayhem and other things going on at work. So we are going to take the week off. And when we get back in two weeks, we're going to have a frank discussion about why America is not the greatest nation on earth and also hopefully provide that light at the end of the tunnel about how it could be. The next movie on the agenda coming out in about a month, you gave me such a look when I said that we were going to do this one, but I assure you it is relevant. Uh, We're going to be taking a look at A lot of people's least favorite Star Trek movie. It's actually one of my top three in that particular series. 
and I know that I'm in a minority with this, but we're going to be looking at Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And it may seem weird. Why are we looking at a sci-fi movie? If you've seen it, you already understand why we're going to be looking at it. If you haven't, then I'm not going to spoil anything. But suffice it to say that there is some really, really good messaging in here about the dangers of religion and belief. And we're going to, again, take it apart scene by scene, line by line, and tie it into the overall messaging of what we're doing here on Unbound. So that's going to be sometime mid-June, and we've got some other really good stuff planned for the in-between weeks. But right now, I know this is going to take a little while to go through, and there's a lot to say about it. So let's just dive right in with our review of A Thief in the Night. So I started thinking about this as I was going through my notes. You know, we we sit there and we watch the movie and make notes. And then usually I'll watch the movie again to just you know get a few details straight and whatnot. But the key thought that was going through my head when I started this entire process with this movie was that when Jesus gave his great commission, he never said word one about using scare tactics and manipulation to spread the gospel message. The gospel was supposed to speak for itself and through the bringer of the message. Let your light so shine among men that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven is a far cry from reel them in no matter what it takes. Threaten them with hell. Make them paranoid. Make them toss and turn at night and have nightmares until they give in. The psychological warfare that this movie engages in is disgusting, as is the constant paranoia that some of the characters perpetuate. They don't seem remotely phased about demonstrating, demonstrating what this messaging does to children. And while it isn't a kid's movie, they pulled it out on me multiple times, beginning at age 13. And some churches play this card even earlier. To demonstrate my point, I'm going to read excerpts from some of the reviews of this movie that people have left on imdb.com. Quote, I am 61 years old and still tormented by seeing this film in the dark basement of my middle school friend's church at their evening youth group meeting. It was nothing less than child abuse and cultist manipulation using fear of a young child to control. This movie is antithetical to Jesus' message. I choose Jesus' way of love and compassion, not cultish mind games and fear. What would Jesus do? He would not show this film in a dark room of a church to a 13-year-old or anyone else for that matter. And here's another one. Oh, we got got a few. We got a few. Tuck in. We got a few. This film demonstrates Christianity's need to rely on emotional manipulation and scare tactics to indoctrinate and maintain adherence to its fragile belief system. Anyone who thinks that showing this film to anyone, especially impressionable children, with the intent to instill fear for the purposes of conversion to Christianity or to intensify someone's faith is morally corrupt and abusive. I've read too many stories of people who have been scarred by churches and parents who demand this piece of poorly produced propaganda be used as a manipulation tool, and those who do so are the real evil. And then another reviewer had this to say, Perhaps because I was so young, innocent, and brainwashed when I saw it, this movie was the cause of many sleepless nights for me. I haven't seen it since I was in seventh grade at a Presbyterian school, so I am not sure what effect it would have on me now. However, I will say that it left an impression on me, and most of my friends. It did serve its purpose, at least until we were old enough and knowledgeable enough to analyze and create our own opinions." 
And someone else said, I saw this film so long ago, I can't recall how old I was. Had to have been less than eight years, but older than four. Jesus Christ, that's young. After watching it with my parents, it haunted me for the longest time, particularly when connected with the song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. The intent was obviously to scare the viewer into salvation. Depending on your mindset while watching A Thief in the Night, you may or may not take any of it seriously. That is why, as a child, lacking the experience, understanding, and ability to compartmentalize it was the most disturbing, for me anyway. Oh God, it just keeps going on and on and on. Just a couple more here. I was raised in a very Christian household since birth. I was saved before I saw this movie and the rest of the series and was forced to watch it in a youth group at my church. This movie was highly disturbing. I saw it when I was about 12 years old and literally had nightmares about it for years. I used to lay awake in bed and listen for the sounds of my mom's footsteps upstairs. If I didn't hear her footsteps, I would sneak upstairs to make sure she hadn't been raptured. I used to pray so hard every night for salvation because I was terrified of Jesus forgetting me. It took me years to shake the fear that this movie gave me. And then a nice little one-two punch to end things off. From first frame to last, it remains repulsively gloomy, angry, and depressing. This from a film about Christ's second coming, a subject which should impart a message of hope, not fear. And finally, this isn't family-friendly evangelical filmmaking. This is punch you in the face and demand you get saved now mania. Here's the thing about that last part. Word of Life used the same scare tactics on us. They showed us a double feature one night. We saw A Thief in the Night, and then we saw A Distant Thunder, oh, which yeah. I think in some ways is worse. I think A Distant Thunder is even more grisly. And they didn't need these movies to dump this messaging on us. Their messaging was either the rapture will happen and you'll be left behind, or you could drown in the lake or get into a car accident on the way home. And Satan is just itching to claim the life of a young person. Because when you accept Christ when you're young, it's harder to sway you later. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not part from it. I am literally hearing these words in my head as I'm recounting them. And the speaker that night said this. He said, where you should go right now is to this altar. Give your life to Jesus and you'll be pulling one more trophy off the devil's mantle. By the time I saw this movie, a lot of these thoughts had already been normalized in my head. I thought Dwayne had the right idea, one of the characters in the movie, and I wanted to be like him. And I was, to an absolute fault, I was. Today, I look at how I thought then, and I watch what happens in this movie, and seeing it for what it is makes what's coming up now beyond deserved. I don't intend to mince words, and I don't intend to be polite. So with that, let's get right into it. They start out by telling us that this movie is filmed on location in Iowa. On location. <laughs> on location of the rapture. Must have been one of those local raptures. <laughs> oh, and it's in color. Well, thanks, movie. I never would have guessed that. Is this hell? Nope. It's Iowa. <laughs> so the movie starts off with a blank screen and a ticking clock. And then up pops Matthew 13, 35 through 37 from the Living Bible Translation. And right there at the beginning, we see this. Keep a sharp lookout, for you do not know when I will come at evening, at midnight, early dawn, or late daybreak. Don't let me find you sleeping. Watch for my return. This is my message to you 
and to everyone else. And at that point, an alarm clock goes off. And a girl who will learn her name is Patty wakes up to the news that a lot of people have disappeared. And here's just the caliber of the script writing for this movie. You hear this news reporter say, literally thousands, perhaps millions of people disappeared about 25 minutes ago. And then a sentence or two later, he says that it's now clear that, quote, millions who were living on this earth last night are not here this morning. So literally thousands, perhaps millions, and then definitely millions within two (laughs) sentences. This is great script writing. And thank you, Discount Walter Cronkite, for clearing that up for us. (laughs) So Patty goes looking for her husband and finds his electric razor dangling off the vanity and buzzing away. But guess what? There's no Jim. The news reporter then dares to use the term the rapture and then quotes Matthew 24, 36, which is the verse that says that no man knows the day or the hour, um, not the angels in heaven, but my father only and onward from there. And then pretty much the rest of this movie is going to be a flashback. We're about to see everything that leads up to the buzzing razor and the emergency broadcast. So we're in a youth group meeting. How apropos. And Dwayne, the kid who's leading the group, he literally is just a kid. He's not much older than any of them. No. He's really annoying and never shuts up about the rapture. And he sits there and reads this passage word for word. Then this is Matthew 24, 37 and 38, also from the Living Bible. It says, The world will be at ease, banquets and parties and weddings, just as it was in Noah's time before the sudden coming of the flood. People wouldn't believe what was going to happen until the flood actually arrived and took them all away. So shall my coming be. Two men will be working together in the fields, and one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be going about their household tasks, one will be taken, the other left. So be prepared, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Then he basically reiterates all of this in his own words. You know, because hearing this once wasn't quite enough. Yeah. And he says, any minute, any second could be the last chance you have to give yourself to Jesus. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, dude, promise? Does that mean we won't have to hear about this anymore? And then he says, this is no joke. And this is not a fairy tale. Um, Wrong on both counts, Dwayne. Wrong on both counts. And I can't help realize here that the Christians are doing now exactly what the Unite goons in this movie do later. They're pushing the urgency, giving ultimatums, and strong-arming people into accepting Christ. I honestly can't believe I ever identified with this, but I did. The imminent return was one of the 16 fundamental flaws of the Assemblies of God. We believed this, and we believed it could happen at any time. Funny how it had phased none of us that it had already been 2,000 years. Then we get what is, oddly enough, a cover of a Larry Norman song by the Discount Partridge family of this movie, a.k.a. a group called the Fish Market Combo. I swear, those girls standing there behind Dwayne looked like the wives of Manos for our (laughs) MST fans, okay? I literally wondered the first time I saw it if this was like a Mormon-made thing and these were like this dude's wives, But nope, it's just a very 1973 way to dress when you're in a hip Christian rock cover band and can't sing because none of these people can sing. Oh, no, they can't. They're all pitchy. Extremely pitchy. They also kind of reminded me of the Brady kids dressing up as the silver platters. You remember that? 
Oh, only vaguely, but yeah, yes. It had the feel. It definitely did. Yeah. But the song that they play is Larry Norman's song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And I'm going to read the lyrics to this. There's not a lot to it. This listener is the future that evangelical Christianity sees for this world. Think about these lyrics the next time you contemplate going back to church. Life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. Everyone? So who is this singing? I wish we'd all been ready. Children died. The days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears, and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. Now, the people in this movie... I mean, almost everybody in this movie who calls themselves a Christian is fucking obsessed with this message. Mm. But I do think that all this time later, it just seems amplified here. They pushed the rapture on us like crazy. Yeah. And it wasn't just the Baptists. It wasn't mm -hmm. just the Pentecostals. It was anyone who was an evangelical anything pushed this on us like crazy. Oh, yeah. So it's not just this movie. And you don't have to watch this movie to get the same messaging pretty much the same way. It's yeah. just that when it's plastered up on a screen in front of you, it's a lot harder to shake the images up as opposed to just sitting there and listening to a sermon. And while I'm sitting here listening to these people, and I use the term loosely, sing this song, <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking to myself, damn, they're spending a lot of time on this song. Well, I guess they paid for the rights, so they're going to get what they can out of it. And actually, it's more than this when you consider that you hear it two more times oh, yeah. during the course of the movie. At the very beginning, as they roll the credits, they spend three minutes and 40 seconds just on this song. Three minutes and 40 seconds of a 68-minute movie. <laughs> now, my math isn't great, but I think that's in the ballpark of about 4% of this whole movie being spent listening to people butcher an already awful song with nothing but their shrill, pitchy voices, a polymoog, and a beginner's drum kit. Mm. So now we get the rest of the credits in silence. And once, once the song is done, they, they, they couldn't even time this well enough to end the credits when the song is done. So now we're getting the rest of the credits in silence, like someone died. Or I thought of the silent clock on 24, <laughs> which also means that someone died. Yeah. And after all that doom and gloom, it's a carnival or a fair or something. Uh, there are rides and a midway. And it felt to me like Dwayne was almost literally pulling people, particularly attractive women, off the midway to proselytize them in a tent somewhere past the 4-H pavilion. So now we get Patty, Diane, and Jenny. And there's there seems to be a bit of an age difference. You know, Diane is definitely the oldest. Patty is somewhere in the middle. And Jenny is pretty young. Yeah. And they're having this conversation about what Dwayne had to say while they're strolling around the fair. So I'm thinking, damn, did they just pull kids off the midway? Five attractive girls for every boy, mind you. And start preaching and singing at them? I mean, it wouldn't surprise me because it's not like I didn't do similar. 
there was that whole peer care thing. And if you don't know what that's about, you got some catching up to do. <laughs> and Jenny says, what do you think about what he said? And what do you think about what Dwayne said? And uh, Diane says, oh, I thought it was just a bunch of bull. And Patty says, some people get all strung out over things that don't even matter. I mean, I'm a Christian. Well, not like he was a Christian. I mean, I go to church every week. I try to follow the Ten Commandments. I read my Bible once in a while. And I try to help people if they need it. And Diane says, you're practically a missionary. And Patty says, well, what else is there? And the general consensus among the three is, I don't know, because that's pretty much what anybody knows about Christianity before it starts getting shoved down their throats. Right. But Jenny can't get this off her mind. She actually wants to go back and get indoctrinated a little bit more. The other two decide that they're going to ride the tilt-a-whirl again. So Jenny goes back to this, where, where, whatever it is, the youth center that they had set up at this uh, at this carnival. Yeah. And we'll see her again in a couple of minutes. But then Diane and Jerry meet, and they're instantly horny for each other. Oh, yeah. These two, the instant they meet, they're so into each other, it's not even funny. And they're actually the only two characters in this whole thing that seem to have any chemistry whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Jenny is getting adequately indoctrinated. You know... When you come back looking for more, oh my fucking God, did they just descend on you yes. at that point? You're theirs now. As soon as you come back wanting to know more, oh my, it's all over. You're theirs now. So uh, one of the other people who's in charge of this whole thing, I don't you know, they, they don't develop this enough for us to even know who this person is. But the way that this woman that starts the whole discipleship thing with Jenny presents the gospel, it's sickening. It is absolutely sickening. And here are just a few of the pearls of wisdom. She says, salvation is free. It doesn't cost anything but your life. Oh, is that all? Even Jenny had her misgivings about that one. She's like, yeah. that seems pretty expensive. And then this crazy lady says, you're letting God take over your life. There's no way you can lose. Okay, so there's no way you can lose by becoming an ecclesiastical meat puppet and not having any sense of self or autonomy, not being allowed to make a single decision on your own about anything anymore. It all has to go by Jesus because he's living through you now. Mm. Yeah, that sounds great. And then she makes a reference to true Christianity as opposed to all that untrue Christianity that's out there. Yeah. Then quite coincidentally, I'm sure, hits all of Patty's bullet points about what makes her a Christian as a list of why that doesn't make you a Christian. Yeah. And then she says that a perfect God can't have a relationship with a bunch of, well, she doesn't say it. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. This is my snark enhanced uh, yes. analysis of what she says. <laughs> she says a perfect God can't have a relationship with a bunch of dirty sinners. Those same dirty sinners who are made in his image and likeness. So, she says God became a person so that he could slum it with the rest of us. Mm. That's the general gist of this version of the gospel. And not for nothing, but she has that incredibly vacant evangelical, nothing going on upstairs that ain't got to do with Jesus air about her. Breathy and hopped up on Xanax is all I could think of. Yeah. I would love to learn. I would love to learn that she was literally high. <laughs> when she did this scene. Yeah, right. Because who the fuck knows what these people actually believe? For some of them, it was just a paycheck. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? And she starts recounting to Jenny all the horrible things that happened to Jesus and what he did to buy her salvation. And Jenny says, boy, that sure doesn't sound fair. And the answer to that is, whoever said love is fair? 
I mean, this was mm. how many years off was this from uh, what movie was it? Love Story. Love Story. Love means never having to say you're sorry. That's what I thought of instantly. Whoever said love is fair? You know, it, it's it's every bit as toxic as that line from that movie. Oh yeah. So along the way, Patty and Diane both meet guys at this thing. Yeah. And Patty meets this guy named Jim. And while Diane and Jerry are off flying in a helicopter, Patty and Jim are getting to know each other a little bit better. And poor Jenny is busy getting saved. It amazes me how much like a chick track this whole thing is. Jenny seems flabbergasted by what she's hearing about Jesus, like in every chick tract where the notion of the gospel is just completely foreign to pretty much everybody. And that's the it's the same kind of sentiment that's going on here. So yeah, she, she's acting very taken aback by right. what she's hearing. And in a way, I kind of get it, though, because I'm, as I was watching this, it's like, no, don't judge this too harshly on this level because you went through the same thing when you went to the island. Oh, yeah. And I did, because up until that point, every story that I had heard or every explanation of Christianity and the gospel that I had heard or was cognizant of basically came from the Catholic Church. I mean, there was there was chapel, which was definitely evangelical, but more ecumenical. Right. So I had never heard the gospel presented this way. And it did kind of hit me like a ton of bricks the first time I heard it. So I can't really judge her that badly. Right. Because this is something that a lot of us go through. Oh, yeah. My thought on this is that the basic bullet points of the gospel are still things that have made the rounds enough to not be this much of an epiphany with this kid. She's told all this stuff, and within minutes, she's buying it hook, line, and sinker and praying a rather eloquent sinner's prayer that she seems to be conveying off the cuff. And all of it sounds really, really familiar. And of course, this all has to be real because she can feel Jesus now. Yeah. Then, for absolutely no reason, we watch this helicopter take off. I mean, is this supposed to be some kind of veiled rapture reference? <laughs> I have no idea. Maybe they just needed something to do with the camera for that uh, for that 10 seconds or whatever it is. And then we have a quick jump cut to an innocent grasshopper on a window that Patty pointlessly murders with a newspaper. Yeah. And and apparently they're someplace called Bortel's Bar Rockin' Bee Guest Ranch. They make sure to linger on the sign for a good half hour to be sure that we know that this is, in fact, Bortel's Bar Rockin' Bee Guest Ranch. Yeah. This is where they, I don't know, live, work, live and work. Is the cast of Billy Jack going to show up in a minute? I, <laughs> I don't know. So Patty and Jenny are talking, and Patty says that uh, she and Diane met some really nice guys. And Jenny, all bubbly with evangelical NRE effervescence, says, I met Christ. Yeah. So next scene, we see Dwayne from the teen center just suddenly reclining under a tree. He just seems to show up in random places. It's just weird. And Jenny seems to know exactly where to find him because now comes the real discipleship part of this new convert narrative. And boy, is he painting a rosy picture of what it's going to be like for Jenny. He starts by asking if anyone has given her a hard time yet about becoming a Christian and basically says, well, don't worry, they will. Pretty soon you're going to run into difficulty and not just people. Satan isn't happy about your decision to give your life to Christ. 
you know, I'm thinking to myself, this is a real Dawn of the Dead kind of moment here. Yes. Satan is coming for you, Jenny. They're coming to get you, Barbara. You know, <laughs> just same kind of vibe. But there's good news, according to Dwayne. He, sa- he says, but you have all the power in heaven to overcome Satan. And I'm sitting there thinking, too bad God doesn't give a shit about any of that. <laughs> um, so now we get a choppy transition to a much too long scene where everybody is water skiing. Where exactly do you water ski in Iowa? I'm not not quite sure, but I suppose there's water there. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've never been... I've never been, been no, there. no, uh, um, not a, no slight to any, anyone listening in Iowa. If we have any listeners in Iowa, I think we probably just lost them, but that's okay. So to be a little bit more succinct on what's happening here, the boys are water skiing. The girls, the girls are having a picnic. I mean, you got to keep the women in their place, right? Nearly every scene involving women in this movie revolves around food or something domestic. I mean, you can't have them showing off their water skiing skills or anything like that. Now, can we? This scene just seems so out of place for this movie because everything else is so heavy and there's this darkness and gloom over all of it. And now we just got this this happy scene of people water skiing. And I guess the point of the scene is that these are the waning happy days on earth for these dirty heathens. (laughs) Dwayne is, for reasons unknown, invited to this. And it's odd because he seems to know Jim and Jerry and the rest of the main cast. And these people seem to be the only ones who really want to listen to him. I mean, there were a lot of people in that uh, in that meeting, but now it's down to this small group. And also for reasons unknown, we don't see Dwayne being overly preachy at this point. I mean, you see him kind of faceplant in the water. And uh, I, I was really, really waiting for something like, you say you like water skiing? Well, I serve a savior who doesn't need water skis. I face planted in the water because I didn't have enough faith to stay on my feet. But Jesus will keep you on your feet, oh even my. in adverse circumstances if you let him. I was waiting for it, but nope, never happened. You fell into that way too easily. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I was the one touting a lot of this rhetoric for a long time. So, mm. you know, it, it may not be part of who I am anymore, but a lot of that shit's still in my head. I could. I could just get up in any pulpit and preach on pretty much anything. I could still do it. But I would never, ever, ever do that to people. I would never. Yeah. Um, that's not me. It's no. it, it, it will never be me again. But yeah, it's still in there. It's oh, all yeah. still in there. I know. So now at this point, the girls are talking. And Diane seems to think that Jenny and Dwayne are a thing. They really aren't. And I'm thinking, you know, by all accounts, they both seem to be at least, you know, somewhat asexual. They're too in love with Jesus to worry about things like petty human romance. So, no, they're not a thing. Jenny is asked if she believes all that Christian stuff, and she's oddly honest. She says, I really don't know enough about it. Well, and my answer to that is, sweetheart, yeah, you do. You do. And you should forget everything you know about it right now. All this girl really knows about the rapture is that, quote, it's just something Christians believe in. And the blank expression on her face when she says it tells me everything I need to know about how committed the end times nutters are to educating people about this religion that they militaristically spread. Accidental messaging galore in this one for anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear. It's all throughout this movie. They out themselves in so many different ways. So Diane wants to give Patty a little advice about sex, which of course makes Jenny the evangelical avatar really uncomfortable. 
Jenny gets up to leave because, quote, I really don't want to hear any of that talk. So Diane tells her not to worry. She and Patty will talk, quote, when the children have been put to bed. (laughs) I love that line. Yeah, I know. We're going to be taught to hate her character. Yeah. But, you know, this, she's one of the only ones with a brain in her head. So, of course, we're supposed to hate her. And this kind of thing is is very typical of a new convert. Jenny has been a Christian for just a couple of days, and already she's sitting there thinking that she's better than these dirty sinners. And you know what? I'm sorry. I was like that, too. And it only got worse over time for me. A lot of my friends, you know, they they went through their conversion experiences, and it just kind of settled after a little while. It took a lot longer for it to settle with me. I'm just going to put that right out there. But, you know, the funny thing is, I just, um, I'm going to expand on my thought from a second ago here. I find it interesting that the most level-headed and most realistic thinking people in this movie, those two being Diane and Jerry, are also the ones that are painted as being the most evil. I mean, I don't think either of them are particularly likable, but they're perfect for each other. And in a universe where all of this is bunk they're thinking about this the right way they definitely are diane and patty are talking about their boyfriends and we learn that jim works at a zoo and is studying to be a vet and that jerry is uh, is pre-med and working as an emt or quote ambulance attendant as she calls him and she tells patty we got us a couple of doctors and i'm thinking yeah to take care of you right Mm -hmm. more veiled misogyny but it was it's kind of typical in 1972 gender roles in america hadn't changed much by then not that they're all great shakes now but back then that was kind of typical so diane talks a little bit about jerry's job she says oh he sees some gory stuff but most days he's just sitting around waiting for a call that may or may not come in and then she says no one knows when it's going to happen and (laughs) there are so many ham-handed segues in this movie and this is one of them they had to use that line to segue into another scene with Dwayne, where he literally says the exact same thing. He says, no one knows when it's going to happen. We've segued from talking about an EMT's job to the rapture. And that's how this movie deals with its transitions. Yeah. Like all of them. They're terrible. There was one that was particularly laughable. I think I know which one you're, you're talking about. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to it. It's, it's, sure. it's not too far down the line here. <laughs> so now we're getting more of Dwayne and his rhetoric. And he is seriously obsessed with end times hysteria. It's like he doesn't think about anything else. Yeah. He certainly never talks about anything else. And, you know, I'm looking at him. They 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 focus in on him and his snaggly teeth so many times. And I'm just looking at his face and realizing that he has that same vacant evangelical visage that most of them have, especially the ones that are this gung-ho. Yeah. And he says that God is holding back the full force of evil in the world. But when the rapture happens, the spirit of God will depart from the earth and evil will reign. It'll be, quote, a whole new ball game without any rules. So basically what he's saying is that things are going to suck after the rapture when the devil is unleashed. And that's the Cliff Notes version of his commentary there. And then he says, sinners are waiting for the end of life and doom. Christians are waiting to be with the one who gives us life. And we'll meet him when we're dead or raptured. And I mean, I'm sorry, same difference. It just skips a step. Mm -hmm. Then they talk about the mark of the beast. And it's referred to as a super evil credit card permanently set on your forehead or right hand. Now, 
Jerry and Diane are in this group too, and Jerry is not exactly a believer, and neither is she. And they start mocking this a little bit, and well, a, a little bit. They start mocking the shit out of it. <laughs> and Jerry then starts pretending that he's Humphrey Bogart as the Antichrist, and basically is just being Jerry, his comical, uh, pardon the term, but devil may care self. He tells Diane that he's the Antichrist, and Diane tells him that's good because I've always been a sucker for beasts. So, wow. you know, and, and again, this, this, this is the right way to react to this shit. Yeah. But not in this movie. <laughs> now we get the oddest preacher I have ever seen. Yeah. He's like an atheistic preacher or well, I'm more of a humanist kind yeah. of preacher, but just really, really, really out there. Um, there's way too much logic in his messaging. And this is the church that Patty attends, quote, most Sundays. So she's out there in the congregation listening to this. Whatever kind of church this is, the one thing that you could call it, given the messaging that's coming from the pulpit, is progressive and definitely liberal. So, of course, it's bad. The movie has to make sure we understand this is bad. So this guy clearly believes that the Bible is allegory, and he has a lot to say about that in this particular sermon. He says, quote, to insist that the Bible is anything more than the poetic expression of those greater principles by which man lives with man is to box oneself in with a wealth of opinion and counteropinion, which really doesn't matter because it doesn't affect the way we are. What matters is what we can know about man's relation to man. Create the universe in six days if you like, but don't force me to accept that myth as fact and make our relationship depend on it. The one moment of truth in this whole thing, and it's made out to be evil and subversive because, of course, it is. <laughs> and you want to talk about a ham-handed segue? How about this? He says, believe in a real Adam. Believe in a real Eve. Believe in a real serpent. And that's all we're ever going to hear of his sermon because now we're going to jump cut to a real serpent. Hey! And here's that serpent now. It's a, it's a big-ass cobra, and he's out of his cage, and Jim is about to get a big surprise. Did I mention that he works at a zoo? I yes. think I did. Okay. Yes, you did. So before he realizes what's happening, the snake bites him. And even though he's all alone in the reptile room at the zoo, he's in an ambulance like instantly. Oh, yes. Yeah, so that's the transition. He opens he, his mouth to like yell and it all of a sudden it's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He opens his mouth to scream and you hear the siren Yes. Of, the, of the ambulance. And you don't cut. hear him. You just hear the siren. That's it. They it's... they do this like so many times in this movie. I don't know whether they were trying to be witty or what they were trying to do. But uh, yeah, again, very, very ham-handed kind of segue into the next scene. And as luck would have it, it's Jerry that responds. Or he's one of the EMTs that responds. And I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, this must be a really small town mm. if they got him. And so now they're at the hospital and Patty pins the doctor down as to whether or not Jim is going to die. And the doctor tells her that Jim needs a blood transfusion from someone who has been bitten by cobras so his body can fight off the venom. I'm not 100% clear on whether or not that's how it works, but okay. And as it turns out, there's a guy out there with Jim's blood type who can provide a, a transfusion that will save him, but time is running out. So poor Jim is holding on by a thread and they are airlifting the donor to the hospital. 
Jenny starts praying. Everyone is praying for the donor to get there in time. But Jenny concedes in her prayer that God is going to do whatever he wants. I know your will is going to be done, but this is what we want. Okay, so if you already know that God's going to do whatever the fuck he wants, and you know that 100% of the time equates to him doing nothing, then why fucking pray? Why even <laughs> bother with the prayer? So now there's this whole building of tension thing around whether or not this dude is going to get there in time to save Jim. And the way this movie goes about this sort of thing is also very ham-handed. But, you know, I also think that it was very 70s uh, TV medical drama at this point, too. You know, I'm getting huge emergency vibes off of this scene. You know, I'm, I've actually gotten to rediscover that show recently. Yeah. And I still love it. I feel like it's really goofy and campy, but it holds up. Yep. But this particular scene really made me... But this scene to me looked a lot like a scene from that show. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, we're airlifting the donor to Rampart. Alert Dr. Early. So now the donor is kind of lagging. And, you know, we're, we're still waiting to find out, figure out whether or not he's going to get there in time. But now there's another preacher being thrown into the mix. And I'm thinking, oh, great. A dude with a Bible. That's going to help. This actually is the pastor of Jenny's church. Not Patty's. This guy is way more evangelical. So now someone who actually matters is going to pray. This guy, his name is Pastor Balmer, is on the scene, and he's there praying, open Bible and all. And surprise, surprise, the donor gets there. Jim gets a transfusion and stabilizes. So Jim is going to be okay. Oh, never mind. Now he's in church and not Patty's church, Jenny's. Patty has smartly stayed home. She's sitting this one out. Jim looks absolutely dazed when he walks into this place <laughs> and literally says, I really don't know what's happening. And dude, you look it, okay? Jenny assures him that he's come to the right place to find out. Oh, how marvelously cliche. Now, at this point in his life, Jim is going through what a lot of people go through. I've said it before, major life crises usually have one of two effects on people. They either repel people from religion or drag them into it like an ecclesiastical tractor beam, okay? And apparently Jim is kind of on the latter half of that equation at this point. He's in church because of what happened to him. And as we find out, every church in this town is obsessed with the end times and the Antichrist, including Pastor Balmer's church. Now we set up the image of the Antichrist, but we only hear about him in this movie. We don't get to see him. There is a lot of setup for the next three movies here. And, you know, the sequels were very clearly pre-planned. So Balmer suggests that the Antichrist could be alive and holding a position in government. He then starts going off about people believing that the rapture already took place because a loved one wasn't where they were expected at a certain time. Amazing how they admit to the hysteria this shit produces, and they do it with a real yeah and kind of attitude. That <laughs> I really noticed about this. And here's what he had to say about that part of it. And they don't even try to paint this in like a negative light. That's the funny part. He says, I'm reminded of a neighbor I had back in Nebraska who got up one night in the middle of the night, took off his pajama tops, and went downstairs for some iced tea. In the meantime, his wife had awakened out of her sleep and discovered her husband was gone, turned on the light, found his pajama tops, and was immediately convinced that the rapture had taken place and that she had been left behind. Well, from our studies in the past few weeks, we can conclude 
that we're living now in the end times. The days in which we live are seeing many prophecies being fulfilled that we have never seen fulfilled before. And surely this serves to remind us that the time is short at best. And if we would be followers of Jesus Christ, we must join his band now. No, that's not what it tells us. All it tells us is that this poor person is so heavily indoctrinated to this shit that this is what she thought because her husband took off his pajamas and went downstairs for tea. Mm -hmm. That's what it tells us. And of course, Jenny's little sister, Susan, comes home after all of this and she can't find her family anywhere. So she freaks because she thinks the rapture has taken place. And again, they actually depict, they, they show you the psychological damage that this messaging does to children, but they don't seem to care. No. So Susan comes home and I mean, I'm, I'm wondering how these people don't burn their house down. There's uh, there's this pot of something on the stove that has boiled away almost to nothing. OK, and it's burning on the stove. And Susan calls out to, to mom, says, mom, I'm home. And mom doesn't answer. So she's like, mom, mom, mom. And then she starts screaming. And all of a sudden, mom shows up. And asks her, what's the matter? And Susan says over and over and over again, she just says, I thought you were gone. I thought you were gone. And what she means is, I thought you were raptured. Yep, child abuse at its finest here, folks. Yeah. So now after Susan learns that her family is still right there and alive and well and hasn't been raptured and all of that, we get to see her little conversion experience because now she too has been scared to God over this uh, end times propaganda So now we get to see her pray her sinner's prayer. So now everybody in that house is saved. And if the rapture happens, then they're all going to go to heaven together. Isn't that just warm and fuzzy? Next scene, we see that Patty and Jim are getting married. And we get this very lengthy montage of what I can only imagine is their first year together. All these pictures of them doing things together and just, you know, being so in love. And let's just keep in mind while we're watching this with the music bed to I wish we'd all been ready playing in the background that he's gone at the beginning of the movie. Jim is gone. But you look at this montage and it's like, look how look how in love they are. And now they're going to be separated for all eternity because he's going to accept Jesus and she isn't. And then there's Pastor Balmer at their house again. There's a lot of this kind of thing that goes on in this movie. It's like, why is he at the house again? I have no idea. Patty says to him, it's all beyond me. I've been raised in the church, taught to do the best I can, to believe in God and hope for the best. What else is there? I mean, I'm good. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I'm as good as the next person, maybe better. And here's Balmer's response. God made us for himself that he might enjoy us. Oh, great. So we're just, we're, we're, we're God's pets. Got it. And that we might enjoy him. Well, what's to enjoy here? Explain this to me. What's to enjoy about a God who solves every problem that he has with humanity by killing people? Apparently, we're here that we might enjoy him and also that we might enjoy each other. But we, well, actually you, broke that relationship when you didn't choose Christ. Just heap on the guilt a little bit. And she says... I never made that choice. And Balmer says, have you ever chosen for him? Okay, let's get something straight here. There is a qualitative difference between actively rejecting something and having a passive unawareness of it. And yet 
The message here is that you can suffer eternal torment over your passive unawareness of the gospel. What kind of righteous judge would pass that kind of sentence on somebody? And Patty says, my minister says, we don't have to get all hung up on all that theology stuff. God is love and he's not going to destroy us because we can't help doing wrong, is he? And Balmer says, it's true that God is love and that God is holy, but God will also punish sin. And my thought here is there's also a qualitative difference between punishing sin and punishing a person for sinning. If sin is the culprit, why must the person serve the sentence? That's what I want to know. And Jim says, I think I understand, but where does love fit in? How could a God who loved me cause me to go through what I did? The answer he gets is nothing short of nefarious and not at all indicative of what a loving parent would ever do. Balmer says, well, Jim, you have to understand that there are times when God uses circumstances in our lives to bring us into a closer relationship with himself. Look at it this way. What chance did you have of making it after your accident? None at all. There was no way your body could produce the antibodies that were needed to fight that poison. It's like they wrote these lines for each of these characters, but it might as well have been one person saying them all. Yeah. So Jim says someone else had been through it. His blood had the cure. And Balmer's like, ding, ding, ding. Exactly. His blood had the cure. And all you had to do was receive it. When you received his blood, that saved your life. His blood has the cure. It all makes sense now. And now for the sales pitch. The Lord is offering you eternal life. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. All you have to do is ask. And he does, hence the dangling razor at the beginning. So at this point, even though she has done her sinner's prayer and she has at least some level of assurance that things are going to be okay, little Susan is still all paranoid about the rapture. Every time Jenny leaves the room, Susan kind of freaks. And now Susan is being asked to go borrow a stick of butter from their next door neighbor. And as she's walking out, she says to her older sister, you be sure to be here when I get back. Oh my God, this poor child. Jenny assures Susan that now that she's said the magic words, don't worry, if I'm gone, you will be too. And now it's starting to heat up. Uh Uh-oh, Jim is shaving. Jim is shaving. This is it, people. Okay? (laughs) Susan is heading to the neighbor's house. Dwayne is mowing the lawn and Balmer is changing the church sign. We pan slowly across the sky and then no more Dwayne, no more Jenny, no more Balmer. The lawnmower is idling on the belt. Jenny's mixer is mixing endlessly. Susan's doll is lying on the sidewalk and the butter is melting into the concrete. Balmer is gone and the sign reads, the end is N-E-A, with the A not completely affixed to the sign. And here comes the news. Drivers disappearing from cars, planes crashing because their Christian pilots have been raptured. And now the UN is going to address the situation at noon Eastern. So during that address, we learn that the UN has formed this committee called the UC. And I don't think they ever tell you what this stands for, but they have a sinister acronym for the task force that's been created to deal with the situation. And that acronym is UNITE. The United Nations Imperium of Total Emergency. (laughs) I know. It's almost as good as S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes. Yeah, no. 
That's Shield is a lot more creative than this. Yeah, it's more more thought went into that. (laughs) So basically, Unite has instantly established a one world government, and this just sort of happens. It's almost as if the plans for this had been set in place ahead of time. Hmm. The Imperium is made up of 10 major world powers consisting of six committees within those countries of six members each. And I'm thinking 10-6-6? Guys, you could have done better. Yeah, really. Uh, the The 10 I can only assume is the beast with seven heads and 10 horns. And those ten horns would be the world powers in question. Mm. So that's all I can get out of that. That's my best guess as to what that's about. And then we get a montage of newspaper headlines. Imperium calls for total support. Imperium initiates ID sign. And the people are told that the mark is a necessity. We all need to be good citizens and identify with Unite. At first, they're asking people to cooperate. You know, right now, getting the mark is voluntary. And there it is, 666 in binary on the news reporter's right hand. I'm not going to get terribly far into this, but basically the code is like, it's it looks like 0110. But if you have any interest in how binary works, you also know that the two bits right there in the middle equal the number six. So yeah. you've got three of the same binary code and they're all sixes. So that's the way that they decided to deal with this in this computer age movie. Yeah. And the people start lining up to get their marks. And we're supposed to feel bad for them because once they have the mark, they belong to the devil. So much for no sin being beyond God's capacity to forgive. Yeah. Right. And they taught us this. I mean, I, I was taught this in every evangelical church that I ever oh, yeah. attended. It's that once you take the mark, you're lost. It's all done. You will never be forgiven. You will never go to heaven, no matter how much you plead and beg. It's all over for you. That's very counter to the messaging of no sin or bad decision of any kind being unforgivable. But apparently this one is. Even if you figure out you're wrong, you're not going to be forgiven for this one. So pursuant to the giving of the mark of the beast, signs crop up everywhere that say citizens only. And Patty has not gotten her mark, so she can't buy groceries. And I mean, she can't buy anything. And every store she goes into, regardless of what they're selling, they all have that sign in the window, citizens only, citizens only, citizens only. So now it actually looks like she's in line to get her mark. I have no idea why they did this this way. None whatsoever. But she gets distracted because she sees Diane and Jerry driving by. They stop and she leaves the line to go to them. And this whole thing is just left dangling. I mean, I haven't the foggiest idea why this little scene is even in there. Yeah. Now things are starting to heat up even more. The mark is no longer voluntary. Unite then calls for the arrest and, quote, prolonged inconvenience of anyone who doesn't take the mark. Since she stepped out of line and went to see her friends, Patty still doesn't have her mark. And somehow these goons just know. There's a narc, a narc, maybe it was a narc, I don't know. There's a knock at the door and Patty starts freaking out. Two Unite agents come to the door, but they very, very quickly leave in their van when she doesn't answer. They're surprisingly noncommittal. Yeah, right? She flees her home and goes to her church where the pastor who said that the Bible was allegory, we find out his name is Reverend Turner, is there and he's lamenting like crazy. He doesn't even really look up at her. He's got his head in his hands and he's looking down and he says... You're still here. How many have I misled? I can't eat. I can't sleep. All I can think about is all those faces. So now 
while he's sitting there doing the whole self-loathing thing, Unite shows up again and drags them both off. They throw both of them in a van, and then we get to see Patty in jail. So while holding Patty in a cell, this Unite guard, this, this it, sweet old grandmotherly type of person right. with a sinister evil undertone is the best way I can describe this person. <laughs> She tries to assure Patty that this isn't a satanic plot. Does this look like a 666 to you? Well, to anyone who knows binary, it does. Uh, I'm not sure how Patty knows, but she knows. And none of this makes sense. A scene ago, she's standing in line to get tagged. And now she's all, nope, not going to do it. That's a computer readout for 666. So she's told that Reverend Turner has taken the mark. He hasn't. He's been shot in the head. And Patty actually sees this because they're taking her somewhere. I don't know what the whole plan was here, but she's no longer in the cell. She sees Reverend Turner on a gurney being taken out of that facility, and he's got a gunshot wound to the head. So she somehow manages to use her brute strength enough to free herself from the clutches of Grandma the prison guard, which doesn't strike me as being all that difficult. And she flees on foot from the detention center. Now she's hiding behind a no parking sign. Oh, that should be effective. And I'm thinking to myself, these people are really invested in apprehending this harmless girl. Like, really invested. Now Patty keeps running into people, and they all have the mark. And it's freaking her out. And, uh, you know, she's she's just trying to figure out what her next move is going to be. And her next move turns out to be hiding in a doorway. Also very effective. Then she decides to try to find Diane. This is going to prove to be a mistake. And all of a sudden, I guess they had gotten due use out of uh, I Wish We'd All Been Ready because (laughs) now we're going to cue the uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail music, which we will hear over and over and over and over and over again through this entire fucking series now. Patty calls Diane and she's like frantic. And Diane tells her to meet them at the dam. And that Jerry is going to be there too. So she does the most logical thing that anyone in her position at that point would do. And she steals a Unite van to get there. This girl does not do inconspicuous very well at all. So of course, these two Unite goons spot her from a helicopter. She abandons the van and starts running on train tracks. Decidedly not a dam and with really literally no place to go. There's a gorge on both sides. She manages to evade the goons for about 10 seconds, but then they come back around. And now she's literally running around in a field like a chicken with her head cut off. And we think that she's cornered again, but now she's going to hide in this broken down shack. And all I could think of when I saw this was, you may find yourself hiding from the Antichrist in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in a totalitarian world. And you may ask yourself, why are they so interested in me? And you may ask yourself, huh? Where have they gone? gone. Because they're just gone. Oh, come on. They lost her in a building? These two are not very bright. I'm just going right on record. These people are kind of stupid. These people make Dumb and Dumber look like savants, okay? (laughs) Um, Now we're just going to walk on those railroad tracks in plain view. And guess what? They're back. But they've got her this time. But, but... Where are you going, guys? Hold on, hold on. They're leaving again? They just literally fly off again. And I'm thinking this in a mocking, but maybe not entirely inaccurate sort of way. It's like, damn, God is giving her so many chances here. Yeah. More walking, and then all of a sudden, look, a dam. And not just a dam, the dam. 
there are Diane and Jerry as promised. Patty is saved and not by Jesus. She's running and running. More Larry Norman music. Oh, fuck, it's back. <laughs> Heat haze as she runs and runs and runs right into the hands of secret agents Diane and Jerry. And as all of this is happening, Jerry is trying to coax her to come along quietly. And you hear Balmer's voice going off in her head. And the line, there will be no place you can hide anywhere, just keeps playing in a loop over and over and over and over again. This is what they want you thinking Yeah. at this point. They want this drilled as far into your psyche as it can possibly be. Jerry has Patty cornered, so she decides to jump off the dam rather than go with Jerry. But the instant before she hits the water and meets certain death, she startles awake. It was all a dream. But wait, buzzing razor, no gym. Oh, no, it wasn't. Now she gets to live the whole thing over again like Groundhog Day. And spoiler alert, this time she's not going to get away. And things are actually going to be a lot different because this is where the next movie picks up. And a lot of these details are different. Her age, for one of them. They redo this scene (laughs) and she's clearly several years older. She is wearing different clothes. There's absolutely no continuity. The only things that are the same are the radio and the alarm clock. But everything else is completely different (laughs) when you go into the next movie. So you have to kind of suspend your disbelief there. It's one more thing about this entire series where you understand what their actual agenda and motivation was. They weren't trying to make a good movie. They were just trying to scare people to God. Yeah. The movie ends with a quote from Matthew 24. They just take two verses and mesh them together. They're like several verses apart in the narrative. It's Matthew 24, verse 36 and 42, partially misquoted from the KJV. This is what's plastered on the screen at the very end. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Take heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. So I'm just going to call this one the Mark IV Frankenstein translation. (laughs) Um, The ticking clock then ends things off, and then they do the thing. The end ellipsis. And the first time I saw this, I was waiting for the question mark, but it's far more campy than a question mark. After, like, many seconds, you see the end is near. And the R is there this time. <laughs> uh, way to drive the urgency. This, this is good marketing, if nothing else. But here's the thing. It is so much else. Mm. This movie is the definition of propaganda and subversion designed to terrify people of any age into accepting Christ. And honestly, when is it ever a good idea to get into a relationship with anyone because you're afraid of them? If the message of the gospel is love, why the need for scare tactics? Because that's all these people know. Deep down, they know they can't get past people's senses of logic with the ridiculousness of the gospel message, so they resort to fear. This movie is also the definition of gaslighting. Our message is reality. Your intellect is the enemy. Things aren't as they appear, and you'll be sorry if you reject this message. They plant the what-ifs so deep that they give people literal nightmares. I don't think I ever had nightmares over this movie, but I did have dreams about being left behind after the rapture for sure. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter what the source of the messaging is. 
their persuasive messaging is so thin, they can't approach it from the perspective of love. It's not God loves you, so accept his gift so you can have an abundant life. It's God expects you to follow him, and if you choose not to, he will punish you forever and ever and ever. 2 Timothy 1.7 says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Where is the power in forced submission? Where is the love in eternal punishment for finite crimes? Where is the soundness of mind in messaging that scars people for life and gives them nightmares for years? The message of the gospel is imploded in the messaging of a thief in the night, and we have to understand that you cannot find love in a God that allows people to suffer endlessly for their passive unawareness of the gospel. You cannot find peace in a message that torments you for years and makes you doubt whether or not God finds you good enough or smart enough or perceptive enough to recognize true teachings about him from false. In the next movie, we find that certain bits of Patty's dream are a little augmented. Reverend Turner is still around, trying to lend support to the people he led astray, but his attitude is way different. He arrogantly informs Patty that if he was preaching heresy, it was her job to call him out and find a church where the gospel is being preached. What a crock of shit. Why would God, who is all-powerful, not simply shut the mouth of an apostate teacher like he shut the mouths of the lions to save Daniel. That's my question. If you reject the gospel or adhere to apostate teaching, it's your fault that you're suffering tribulation in a post-rapture world. More of that awesome evangelical passing of the buck. And with that, I'm issuing a call to action. If you know anyone who has dealt with emotional scarring from these movies to put them in front of this episode and also refer them to the series God Awful Movies did on all of them, starting with episode 12. They approach this from a much more scathing lampoon kind of angle, <laughs> and this movie and all of them in the series deserve the merciless mocking they get from Noah and the crew. Mm -hmm. There is healing in understanding, and there's healing in laughter. It won't undo the damage, but it might alleviate some of the fear. I'm not delving any further into this series. I think we've given it enough attention. But I do think that as a collective community, atheists need to pull back the curtain on these movies and break them down to what they essentially are. Lies and subversion created to instill fear and take control of people mentally and emotionally. And if you're one of the ones who's been scarred, please hear me out right now. These movies don't present the truth. The truth is that we have a responsibility as human beings to live the lives we want, absent of harm to others, and with deference to doing right, and living by rules that lead to happiness and sound-mindedness that others can emulate without fear of judgment. Try to keep in mind that this kind of toxic doctrine is largely the product of one evil person with a money-making agenda. Do some Googling on a guy named John Darby. This entire series is his brainchild put on celluloid more than anything else. And he started spewing this bile about the end times in the late 19th century. Before that, the concept of the rapture and tribulation weren't even a thought in the minds of Christians. Most saw the book of Revelation as allegory, and rightly so. And please listen to me, and please have this straight in your head as you walk away tonight. You have no God to fear. You have no hell to fear, and you have no reason to take any of what is in this movie seriously. Episode 14 of our show goes much more into the whole rapture hysteria, 
And I suggest listening to that next if you haven't already. It'll clear the fog from your brain about this stuff even more when you do. But for right now, let me just remind you once more that fear has no place in a loving relationship. And the ones that are built on it are the constructs of people with ulterior motives and self-serving agendas. If the gospel was true, if God loved you in any way, shape, or form, scare tactics would not be a necessary part of the equation in conveying that message or compelling you to love him back. See this movie more as a warning about why living your life in subservience to a narcissistic megalomaniac is a bad idea, because it is. Let go of the fear. Reclaim your right to think for yourself and don't worry about silly notions like hell and eternal punishment. It isn't easy by any means, but it's a necessary element to getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.